welcome back to On the Soul's Terms podcast to part two of the story of Psyche and Eros. Uh, I recommend going back to part one to get a sense of where we're at so far. But if you haven't or you can't or you really don't want to, then you can listen to this brief recap of the story so far and then we'll take it from here. I'm excited to bring this second half of the story because it has some really deep deep motifs including these four tasks that Psyche is given from Venus or Aphrodite. Each of those tasks um, is fascinating in its own way and, and really gives a good representation of the journey of the soul. And But to get there, firstly we'll just do a, a little... A little recap to see where we've been so far. So we started off with Psyche. She's the youngest and the most beautiful of three daughters. Uh, and she's so beautiful that people stop celebrating Venus. They stop going to her temples and they instead travel from far and wide to behold Psyche, which sounds amazing for Psyche, but actually she's not connected. She's just... Uh, She's like a picture on a wall or a statue. So she craves to be in connection with other human beings, but she sort of isn't. Um, and, of course, this gets the ire of Venus herself, and she gets she gets mad, so she tells her son Eros, or Cupid, to go down to the earthly plane and make her fall in love with some kind of vile creature or some lowliest of the low form uh, to get back at her. Eros, when he goes down to the earthly plane though, accidentally pricks himself with one of his arrows and falls madly in love with Psyche. And so he comes up with a few plans. We don't actually see them written in the plot, but we imagine that he has something to do with what happens next, which is that... Um, that Psyche's parents, uh, they just don't know what to do about Psyche. They're hoping that she can move on with her life and, you know, carry on, find a husband, do all those sorts of things, but, but nothing is happening in her world. So they go to see the Oracle of Apollo to see what they should do. And Apollo, in uh, the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi, gives them some information that, you know, as, as most prophecies are, it's a little, um, there's a lot of double meanings going on, but... The, the gist of it is that she's destined to marry some kind of a, uh, a serpent. But if you read it another way, you could see that she's she's going to marry someone who's very troublesome to all the gods, including uh, Jupiter himself. And we know that that's true. Jupiter is Zeus. Um, and Zeus is often pricked by the arrow of Eros and goes chasing nymphs all over the world. So anyway... They come back from that and they they the father is distraught. He doesn't know what to do, but the the oracle has told them that that really all there is to do is dress for dress Psyche for a funeral, uh, walk her up to the top of a cliff and leave her there, and that's where the serpent monster will call for her. So they do this. There's a big grieving process. But then Psyche is whisked away on a on the Zephyr, which is a gentle breeze, and it takes her down to a bed of flowers. She falls asleep on the flowers and wakes up feeling very refreshed, 
looks at this amazing palace, walks in, there's gold and silver everywhere, um, engravings of wild beasts and all sorts of things, and invisible servants take care of her every need. She's given baths, she's given sweet meats and delicious food, and when night comes, she's readied for meeting her husband, who she doesn't actually get to see. Uh, she can only interact with him in the dark of night, and that is her situation. They have they make sweet love by night, and in the daytime she enjoys all of the wonders of the palace, and that's her setup. But she can't see him, although he can see her. So that's a bit of a theme of this first part, where um, although it seems like Psyche has this perfection and this ideal situation, she's actually in a very uneven relationship. He can see her, she can't see him. And so something has to happen, and that something ends up being her two sisters. Um, she hears them, they come back up to the rocks, and they're wailing and moaning and uh, lamenting the loss of their younger sister. And it's kind of like the sirens calling to the calling to the sailor she she just can't help herself despite everything that eros says and all of the warnings that he gives her she just can't help herself and so calls down the sisters and brings them into the palace and the sisters as soon as they see what psyche's life is like firstly they're they're really happy to see her and all of that briefly and then they're just hit with the pangs of jealousy and envy and um and all they can really think of from that point on is how to how to take Psyche down a notch. They ask who the husband is. She gives them a story, um, but she's been told by Eros not to not to divulge who he is. And so, in order to really stop herself from blabbering on, she gives them some gold and jewels and and sends them on their way. When they get back to the land, they just scoff and they they're disgusted by their little sister who just threw them some some gold just to get them out of there and and they plot and scheme to to take her out in some way so again they come for a second time and ask her about her husband again psyche makes up a brand new story and then realizes she's probably talking too much and throws some gold at them they leave again and then this time they know for sure that she's never actually seen her husband so that gives them an in that gives them a chance to put a few really disastrous thoughts into Psyche's mind and to, um, to tend to the garden of weeds in her mind and, and make her do something that she doesn't actually really want to do. And so they come back and they say to her, you know, the oracle at Apollo, of Apollo, it was right and we think you're in grave danger. And it's like, think about it, you haven't even seen your husband, so how do you know that it's not right that the oracle of what the oracle said, that it's some serpent and it's ultimately fattening you up? Oh yeah, side note, Psyche's pregnant. So they say, you know, it's likely that he this, this serpent is fattening you up and your child so that he can have a big feast at some point. And this gets into Psyche's head, although she wrestles with it a bit, she's in some ways thinking no this couldn't be possibly be true and in some ways thinks yeah that's definitely right um, and because she's never seen him all of this flood of thoughts and images and ideas come into a space 
of uncertainty. And so she takes an oil lamp and she takes a razor. After Eros is asleep, she gets the oil lamp and the razor and sneaks up on him. And then, of course, what she sees instead of a serpent is Eros himself, this divine being, the most divine of all divine beings, perhaps. And she's just smitten. She starts to look at his arrows. He's fast asleep and accidentally pricks herself with one of the arrows. So that just throws love upon love. She climbs on him and she's just kind of gone into um, an ecstatic state. She knocks over the oil lamp. Some of the oil gets on Eris's shoulder and he admonishes her and flies away. Um, And then everything crumbles around her. So that's where we left off from part one. And so part two, so yeah, we start with Psyche devastated at the loss and just unable really to to carry on. She doesn't really know what to do. Um, she's in shock and she just st- looks around her world and everything ha- has completely crumbled and so she does all that she can really think to do and that's to throw herself into the river and she does exactly that she throws herself into the river but the river doesn't accept her doesn't accept this attempt at suicide and instead washes her up at the shore but it's not just any shore in fact at the shore is pan with one of his students teaching teaching music and then so out of nowhere pan's sitting there and suddenly psyche is washed up to the shore and pan which is on the the, the picture of this, of Pan and Psyche, it's one of my, my favorite pictures to just really stare at and, and feel the soulfulness of it. Pan says these words to Psyche. He says, O oh, fair maiden, I am a rustic and rude herdsman. However, by reason of my old age, expert in many things. For as far as I can learn by conjecture, which according to wise men is called divination, I perceive by your uncertain gait, your pale hue, your sobbing sighs, and your watery eyes that you are greatly in love. Wherefore, listen to me, and go not about to slay yourself, nor weep not at all, but rather adore and worship the great god Eros, and win him unto you by your gentle promise of service. And when the great god Pan, the god of shepherds, had spoken these words, Psyche gave no answer, but made reverence to him as a god, and so departed. So I find this really beautiful. I feel like there's a there's a soulful side of Pan that we that we rarely get to imagine in the in the modern day. We're given the image of Pan as the devil. Um, We think of him as you know having orgies out in the forest and these kinds of things. But we maybe don't get this side of Pan. Pan as the wise elder, half goat, half man, who's able to sit with with the pain and, and to sit with the heartache. He recognizes it in Psyche immediately and is able to intuit in a lot of ways that, that this is no ordinary love that she's fallen for. And that's why, in his words, he ends up coming all the way back to Cupid himself or Eros. A very beautiful scene, one that I one that I come back to um, with clients when there's a sense of 
hopelessness or, or loss or that there's no going on or somebody's stuck in, in a loop or traumatized or frozen. It's just a scene that I feel uh, can add soul just, in, just by imagining it, just add soul back to the situation at hand. So after leaving Pan, and this is kind of funny, is uh, I, I enjoy this little section of the story. It's a little bit uncharacteristic of the rest of the story, but I'm definitely not one to edit out the sides of these fairy tales that are a bit more nasty. I think they're important in their own way. So warning, this part is a little bit nasty. Psyche then goes to a nearby town once she's left Pan, and she discovers that it's the town of her sister. So she goes up and requests an audience and her sister and her sit down and her sister's a bit shocked to see her. Um, she's like, what happened? And she she told her that, she told her what happened basically, almost exactly what happened, that, you know, upon getting her counsel or the counsel of her and her sister, she took the knife and she took the oil lamp as they had suggested and to see the serpent and the cut off the serpent's head, but lo and behold what she saw was not the serpent or you know she didn't have a chance to cut off the serpent's head because it was none other than the god eros himself and she spilt the oil lamp on him and he got really distressed and angry and then this is where psyche adds a little twist to the story then eros said to her you've betrayed me you can never come here again and in fact the one i've always wanted was your sister and said your name, sister. He he actually wanted you all along. And then, you know, bid her farewell and, and left that town. And of course, the sister went straight back to her husband, packed up her things, told a lie that her parents were, her parents had died. She needs to go home. So, you know, caught the transport, got back home, went up to the top of the cliff and then leapt for the Zephyr to catch her head first. And of course, there was no Zephyr, and uh, and her body was splayed across the rocks to be eaten by the wild beasts and the birds. <laughs> so this is a little bit like the end of Cinderella, where in the Grimm Brothers version, in order to fit into the slipper, the sisters mutilate their their feet. One cuts off her heel, the other her toes, and then at the very end of the story, I I think it might be at cinderella's wedding where the birds come along and peck out their eyes often quite violent scenes in these fairy tales so why do you think what you know i ask you as the audience why do you think that is that there's this violence and what do you think we lose when we disneyify them you know we clean them up we assume that kids can't handle that kind of thing uh, we edit we take out all of the gruesome bits and we just tell kids the nice stories you know that's interesting in itself isn't it because i think in let's say olden times part of telling a fairy tale and part part of telling a story was to was to in effect uh, prepare a child for the world that is to come like prepare them for some of the harsh realities and hopefully prepare them so that they don't have to make the same mistakes as those in the stories um, but when things get Disneyified, it gets much more romantic and much more clean and pure. There's certainly no 
mutilations of the feet or anything like that that happens or the pecking out of the eyes you don't tend to see that in uh in disneyified stories so we've i guess we've decided as a collective that kids need to be protected from such things um but i wonder if by by protecting children we actually put them in more danger by maybe adding too much naivety to their worlds so that when they get out into the world they're they're not expecting or not not prepared for what can happen anyway that's just a thought a little side journey psyche moves on to the next village and of course it's her other sister and the exact same thing she uh, tells her the same thing and by her other sister's vanity she does the exact same moves and ends up on the exact same rocks eaten by perhaps we could say the exact same wild beasts and birds and so heeding Pan's words, she she puts herself into the service of Eros. She's like, how can I get back to Eros? I think it's actually a really potent image, uh, particularly when we're dealing with trauma and traumatic states where there's that sense of freeze. I don't think Eros in this sense is, uh, is erotic in that it's sexual, sensual, these kinds of things, although there is that element to it for sure, the ability to move into those states. Um, but I think this is Eros's life force, and oftentimes when we've been through a traumatic experience, we we get stuck or shut down, um, and we don't have access to our desires, really, who we want, who we are, and what we want. We don't really have access to that when we're frozen, do we? Or when we're in heightened nervous system states, or when we're running off our adrenals. Uh, so I think there's a there's a potency in that image that she knows that she has to go, she has to find her way back to life force or Eros. And so she goes searching. She goes searching the world. Meanwhile, let's leave Psyche there for a second. We'll go up to Venus or Aphrodite. So Venus in her palace, she's visited by a gull, like a seagull. And seagull comes in to the palace and says, Eros. He hasn't been doing his duties. He's been completely caught up with a particular lady. And um, as such, Eros is starting to disappear from the world. There's more envy, more discord, more debate have taken over the land where there was once love because the great god Eros has not been seen for a long time. And also, you know, in the end, this, this particular lady, this particular maiden, she's burned Eros. And, uh, and Eros is no longer in the land. We don't know where he's gone, but he's no longer in the land. And Venus is shocked by this, and she asks, you know, who is this? Who, who was it? Is it? Who, who is Eros's lover? Is it, is it a nymph? Is it one of the goddesses? Is it one of the muses or one of the graces? Is it one of the divine beings? And the girl responds to that, that no, it's none of these. In fact, it's a mortal, and it's a mortal named Psyche. And one can only imagine the fury of Venus in this moment. One can only imagine um, the fury of a goddess with news like this. So she turns to a full-on rage and she storms back into her chamber. And when she opens her chamber, she sees none other than her son Eros is there. He's nursing his wound. And... 
just unleashes on Eros these words of fury, threatening to cut off his wings, cut off his hair, destroy his bow and arrows. She's talking about, you know, giving some other son or having another son so that she can give another son the the task and the role of Eros. And it's very dramatic, as you can imagine. And, and she storms out of there. And uh, and as she, she leaves the chamber, she sees Demeter and Hera, who immediately try to talk her down from her rage, the two goddesses. Demeter is, um, is the earth mother. Hera is the wife of Zeus. So sort of the queen of the goddesses. Demeter is the, the mother, if you remember, of Persephone, the goddess of the underworld. We did an episode on her a uh, long time ago, one of the early episodes on, on Demeter and Persephone. So they try to talk her down from her rage, you know, sort of a boys will be boys, sort of a talk of, you know, he is Eros after all. I mean, he's going to have these drives and can't you understand and rah, rah. And Venus is not calm by these words at all. In fact, she thinks that they might have been taunting her and mocking her. So she leaves and she goes back out to her glorious ocean home just to sort of um, simmer and, and plot and scheme. So we leave Venus there and we go back to Psyche, who's who's still wandering around the earth looking for signs of Eros. And she sees a church at the top of a hill and she climbs up the hill hoping to get a hint of where he might be. She she thinks, maybe if I can connect to the divinities, uh, I might be able to catch a glimpse of where he is, maybe even get some divine grace and some divine uh, inspiration and help. Um, but when she went in to, that, to the temple or into the church, she saw sheaves of corn in heaps and reeds of barley with scythes and sickles and other instruments, just everything lying in total chaos. And so immediately she got to work and she wasted no time and began to sort, sift and clean and put everything back in order, thinking that she would not despise or condemn the temples of any of the gods, but maybe, you know, just maybe get the, the favor of them all instead. And just as she was sorting and sifting and cleaning and, and doing all that good work, uh, Demeter entered and seeing her, seeing her busying herself and caring for her temples she, her heart was warmed um, and so she went to her and, and warned her that Venus knew about everything that had happened uh, she had found out that Gull had told her and that she was looking for her um, and she was out for revenge and so Psyche fell to her knees and begged and prayed to the goddess that she might have refuge there that, that Demeter might be able to give her a safe place in which to hide this next chapter out and Demeter thanked her for her prayers with all of her heart thanked her for her tears but told her that it wasn't her place to increase the displeasure of her cousin Venus and Psyche would have to go on her way and Psyche was quite disheartened by this and, and thought that maybe meeting a goddess would be in her favour but unfortunately it seemed that wasn't so and so she returned to her search until she saw another temple, but this time it was in the middle of a forest. And she entered and knelt, knelt at the altar of Hera. And she prayed to the wife of Zeus for protection and that Hera might be able to save her from what was looking, for, looking like a certain doom. Nobody wants to be despised by a goddess, least of all Venus. And Hera, hearing her prayers, appeared in her divine form 
and and felt psyche and related to her and experienced her pain but also just like Demeter told her that she couldn't go against the will of her daughter-in-law Venus and that she was forbidden by the laws of the gods to retain any fugitive and so yet again Psyche was forced to leave the temple and to go on her way and this is again Psyche at a, a very hopeless place nothing is really going the way she wants it to go but now she can see that there's really nowhere to run if Demeter and Hera won't won't give her protection um, even despite her the sincerity of her prayers and her her devotion to those goddess goddesses it seemed to her then that no one would provide her any safety from her situation and so she decided quite bravely to go straight to the temple of Venus and to tackle the problem head-on when she got to the temple of Venus she was met by one of the servants at the gate who dragged her by her hair and took her in to see the goddess. Venus was just furious upon seeing her, and she called her maidens sorrow and sadness. Sorrow and sadness tormented Psyche and, and scourged her with whips and rods and then brought her back to Venus, uh, where Venus just laughed mockingly at her. And at this point in the story, we begin the tasks of Psyche. So Venus gives Psyche four tasks. Each of them are very much, to me, very rich in symbolism and, uh, and poetry. So the first task, after taunting her about being completely unworthy to be the mother of her grandchild, Venus takes up a great quantity of wheat, barley, poppy seeds, peas, lentils and beans and other, other forms of seeds a great quantity of, of them and just mingles them all together on a big heap. It's kind of like this small mountain of seeds. And she tells Psyche that she has to separate them out into their distinct and separate piles before the end of the day, at which point she heads off to a banquet to take her pleasure and enjoy her wine and her, her delicious foods and leave Psyche to it. And you can imagine her with a bit of a witch's cackle as she walks away. And at this point, Psyche was completely frozen in place and she sunk to the ground, unable to fathom such an obviously impossible task. But as she sat there on the ground, saying nothing, almost like she's in a, in a freeze state here, a tiny ant arrived on the scene. And taking pity on Psyche, she called to all of her ant friends to help her. And they quickly and efficiently and effectively sorted the pile into all its separate seeds in no time. And when Venus came home smelling of wine and meats, seeing that the task was done, she knew that it was not the work of Psyche's hands, but of those who were fond of her. And so she gave her a, a dry bit of brown bread and went to bed, and Psyche got to rest and would have to come back to these tasks in the morning. So this is an image that I, I really love in astrology. I think of it as the Pisces-Virgo axis, and it's very much a Virgo task, the task of sifting and sorting through all this huge pile of mess, basically, a big scattered pile. It is reminiscent of Cinderella, where there's the good and the bad lentils that the mother-in-law throws into the ashes, and she has to sift and sort, and the birds come and help her. And in this case, it's the ants that come and help. 
Um, so it's a beautiful image. It is one that I come back to in in psychotherapy sometimes when somebody's just trying to kind of get get through all of the the confusion of emotion and turmoil, and we remember those magical helpers and and effectively what it's like just to just to stop and to wait and to allow the sifting and sorting process to happen with the animal kingdom, which I think is symbolic in one sense of the of the unconscious mind that is much better equipped at sifting and sorting through the emotional world. We can also hear in the story, you know, we can hear echoes of um, the fact that there are poppy seeds, barley, wheat. These seeds belong to the world of Demeter. And so we feel that maybe uh, Demeter could be watching over her in the form of these ants and coming to her aid even though she can't help her directly, she finds a way to help her indirectly. So then the next morning, Venus comes to Psyche and points over at a forest over the river. And she told her of the rams, the sheep and the rams that, that shine like gold, and that her next task was to bring back some golden wool of their fleeces. And of course, those are the dangerous the mo- one, some of the most dangerous creatures alive and she's being given the task of going and basically shearing these sheep um, that are definitely going to kill her if she gets too close they, uh, they despise humans Venus thinks that this task will do it this task will be the end of Psyche that she definitely won't be able to get any help there Psyche sees the impossibility of this task and again decides that the best option for her is probably just to throw herself in the river there's there's no going forward here. But just there at the river, there's a there's a reed, a little green reed at the side of the river, and it begins to talk to her, and it asks her not to pollute the river with her death. And the reed tells her how she can get that wool without putting herself in danger. And she tells her to not go to the sheep in the heat of the sun, but to wait until the late afternoon when they all wander off towards the river to refresh themselves and and the reed says as soon as they've gone you'll see plenty of wool in the forest hanging on all the briars of the thickets and so psyche did, does just this she waits and uh and just picks the wool off quite easily off all the thickets and brings it back to her mother-in-law who as you can imagine mocks her and immediately gave her the next task so with this task of psyche the ram the Aries task in a way she has to come up against this fury this anger these rams that will kill any human and we get the read that says just wait it's not to ignore those more hot emotions you know in the first task we had these more cool emotions of sorrow and sadness and and despair and the big the big melting pot of emotions that she had to sift through but in this one we have more the hot emotions like anger and frustration and fury and all of these kinds of things and wisely the reed tells her not to not to go in the middle of the hot sun so so not to go when those emotions are at their hottest and most most lethal but to wait until they've died down a bit and they've wandered off and they've gone to the river so they've come back to the water in a way it's a beautiful image again and of course, who's the helper but the reed? So you, you hark back now to thinking about Pan, who, um, who perhaps is also watching over her in this journey, and it's one of his reeds. Pan plays the Pan pipes, and those pipes are made of those reeds, and so we can feel the presence of Pan. 
in fact, all the way through, we can get the sense of animism here, that the world is alive and the world is helpful and the world wants to see Psyche succeed despite all of these challenges. She's beginning to perhaps learn to trust the world again after such a devastating loss. And so, of course, as I said, Venus gives the third task to Psyche with no delay. She points her up to a great hill with deathly black water running down, and that it's the water that feeds into the river Styx. And she gives her a crystal bottle and, and tells her to bring it back to her full of the dark water. And when Psyche approached the hill, she sees that the rocks are covered in violent gushing of this black water. So it's almost impossible to climb up the rocks. And besides that, it was guarded by or two great dragons, one on each side, that never slept, but were appointed to keep the river there and to not lose a drop. So Psyche, perceiving this danger, stood still as though she'd been transformed into stone. And although she was present in body, she was absent in spirit and sense. And all she could do was to stand and weep. Until she was greeted, you might be able to see the pattern here, she was greeted by the eagle of Zeus, the very same eagle that we talked about in the last podcast when we were discussing Ganymede. So this is the eagle that once came down to bring the young boy Ganymede up to, the, up to become the cupbearer of the gods. And he told Psyche that it would be impossible for her to get a drop of this water, water that the gods themselves were terrified of, the, the water that they swear their oaths by. And so instead, he took the bottle himself, flew up there, swiftly filled it, and brought it back down to her. So now we can see we're getting closer to the underworld theme in this third, this penultimate task. And yeah, there's these dragons, and so it's very, it's very dramatic scene again. Um, there's something impossible of it. She has to somehow ascend. She has to go up this hill in order to get this, um, this underworld water. It's a nice juxtaposition of the fact that she's got to get the deathly water of the river Styx, but she has to climb to get it. It's an interesting one. Um, but we get the sense that, that she's really disjointed, disconnected, and, um, and gone into a completely dissociative state, which I love the way that uh, Apuleius takes us into that being transformed into stone, you know, being present in her body but absent in her spirit and sense. I think all of us have probably experienced this on on some level in our lives, um, some more so than others, and, you know, it can be this this shock feeling that's really hard to shake that can stay with us for a very long time. But she is saved, and, uh, and it is Zeus's eagle that comes down and helps. And so, yet again, we have Hera... Um, who who showed up for her and was willing to talk with her, but wasn't she wasn't willing to be seen as a helper of Psyche because she doesn't want to get in trouble with Venus. She doesn't want to interfere in another goddess's business, which is fair enough. Um, but she she does manage to help out in the background by enlisting the help of Zeus's eagle. You can imagine that she's somehow got sent this eagle or metamorphosized her own consciousness through this eagle to get some of this water and to help Psyche out. And so she comes back, and of course Venus 
as usual. She scoffs at her for her accomplishment and she knows that she's been helped out. So this time, this time she thinks she's got her, she gives her the, the most impossible task of all. And she gives her a box and she says, take this to the underworld and have Persephone send me a little of her beauty as much as will serve me for one day and say that it has been consumed away since my son fell sick. So this is really playing on the on the tiny violin here and um and a very pointed comment that that she just hasn't been able to get her beauty you know, that her beauty is diminishing since being so distraught and so worried about the health of her son who's been ultimately, let's face it, he's got a little bit of oil splashed on his shoulder. He's not dying here. But um she's certainly playing it up. It's getting very, very dramatic. Now Psyche is thinking about, okay, I have to go to the underworld, speak to Persephone and come back. And it's just so rare in Greek mythology that anybody makes it down to the underworld and survives and comes back. It's just such a rare thing. And so she just knows that this is it. There's no way. And seeing the impossibility of it all, she goes up to the top of a tower to throw herself off. It's interesting how often it shows up, right? The the hopelessness, the impossibility, and then the suicidality, a sense of like nothing can be done. Almost like at that lowest point is where uh, something might tend to show up. Of course, in the modern day, we think of that as deus ex machina, which is the idea of some, it's actually from the Greeks, it means the god in the machine. When the god will come down at the hero's lowest point and just slay the dragons or help them out. And it's considered to be like poor script writing these days, maybe because we're so much enthralled in the story of the hero that we want to see heroic things happen from our protagonist. But in this case, I mean, in this time, um, or maybe in this kind of story that's much more about the soul, much more about animism, much more about connectivity and uh, connection to the earthly plane and the helpers and the magical helpers of the earth, maybe it's in this form. They don't see that as in any way cheating. It's... um. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a soulful thing that there's help here. And so she goes up to the top of the tower to throw herself off, but then the tower begins to talk. And I love that it's the tower that talks. I think Hillman talks about this quite a lot of, you know, it's not just the the alive parts of nature that are alive, but also our furniture, our couches, our desks. I remember him, you know, talking about um, that a that a couch has a personality, that a building has a personality, that a city has a personality, you know? So it's really this this story gives us this by this tower also having a personality and having wisdom, even though it's man-made. So the tower says to her, gives her the following instructions, and they're quite detailed. So it tells her where the nearest entry to the underworld is, and then gives it gives her instructions to not go empty-handed, but to take two pieces of bread dipped in honey and barley, and to have two gold coins in her mouth. And when she's passed a certain way, she'll see a lame donkey, or ass, carrying wood, and a fellow driving him who will ask her to give him the sticks that fell down. Pass him by and do nothing. Then you will come to the river where Charon is the ferryman. Let him receive one coin from your mouth. And as you go over the river, you'll see an old man swimming, holding up his deadly hands and wanting you to pull him up, but have no regard for his piteous cry. And when you're over the river, you'll see three women spinning, 
who will ask you to help them, but beware that you don't consent to them, as these are baits and traps of Venus to make you drop one piece of your bread. And don't think the bread is any light matter. You'll need them if you ever want to return to this world. Then you'll see an enormous dog with three heads barking continuously. Throw him one of the pieces of bread. And then, and only then, can you enter to see Persephone. Persephone, queen of the underworld, she will offer you comforts, entertainment, food and drink. But just ask for brown bread and sit on the ground and give your request. When you have received the beauty, give the other piece of the bread to the dog, the other coin to the ferryman, and come up to the upper world. But above all, don't look in the box. Nor to be too curious about the treasure of the divine beauty. So there you go. There is the instructions from the tower. And so Psyche does all of this. She she passes by the lame ass. She pays the coin for passage. She neglects the old man in the river. She denies helping the old women spinning. And she fills the mouths of the ravenous dogs with bread. And then she comes to the chamber of Persephone. And there she doesn't sit in the royal seat or eat any of the delicate meats, but kneeled at the feet of Persephone. And when she received the mystical secret in the box, she went back, gave the dog the other piece of bread, paid Caroni's fare, and returned back up to the upper world. So I want to take a little bit of time with all of this because, gosh, there's a lot going on, isn't there? So, you know, we, we got to think about this where, where in order to go into the underworld and back, one has to be really well prepared. Um, I think it's a, it's this fourth and final task is the, is really the fourth and final task of Psyche. A lot has been written about it, um, by, you know, Eric Newman and, and, uh, Robert Johnson talking about the, the last task of the feminine. And, um, and I hear that, but I think it's just the last task of the soul in a way, you know, this, this idea of having to go to the underworld. So we have to go to the darkest place go to the deep dark places and darkest recesses where all of our fears are all of our worries and concerns are and we have to somehow go there and retrieve something and bring it back so interestingly we have to have this bread we have to have these coins the coins are the coins are interesting as they are in her mouth and I was discussing this today with one of my clients because we really worked through um, this story together and we were sitting with that idea of the gold coins in your mouth. It's almost like that specifically why is that coin in the mouth and something we we sort of came to together was like to keep the speech golden, you know, to not to not waste your words and and waste your breath in in this particular part of the journey. It's fine in other parts of the journey, but here we really need to be very mindful, very careful about what we're wishing for and what we're talking about and what we're saying. We have to have that extra reverence, perhaps, on this part of the journey. Then there's the the old man um, with the sticks and the lame donkey and the other old man that is um, that is drowning in the river. And her usual self, Psyche, is to help and to assist. But we can get the sense that if she does get pulled in by this, it's going to be a disaster for her in this phase of the journey. 
again, maybe in earlier phases of the journey, that compassion is such a beautiful thing. But in this phase, if she does get pulled into someone else's experience and someone else's pain, it's going to be disastrous. She's not going to have what she needs to go down to the underworld and come back, especially this man that's drowning. That's a very potent image. It reminds me of Odysseus who, when hearing the sirens or, or knowing he was about to hear the sirens, asked his men to tie him to the mast, knowing that he wouldn't be strong enough to, to resist them. So this sense of not um, not being pulled in to other people's problems at this point pays the ferryman. You know, something about that gold coin that we give to the ferryman in Plato's story of Ur, uh, you get a gold coin when you're born. Written on one side of that gold coin is all the instructions and written, and the other side is blank. And then, But in order to get born, you go through the river of forgetfulness. So you have to forget all of the instructions, but you do have this coin with you. And that's the coin that you have to give back when you give it to the ferryman. Like that's when that you don't need that anymore. But of course, Psyche, because of the tower, has thought ahead and she has two coins, one to get back. She's going to keep her soul here. But if she does lose her soul, she's going to be in big trouble. And that's why the other bit of information is to not help these sisters that are spinning. And of course, that's the symbol of the fates. You know, if she does join in in the spinning, if she does join in and weaving her own fate, then she's fallen for that thing of control, right? That she can control her own destiny. It's a very heroic story. But in this case, she'll get sucked in um, by the allure of the ego that she can control her own fate here. And that is not for her right now. In fact, if she's going to spin, she'll start to really spin and she'll be stuck in the underworld. And... As the tower says to her, if she does stop to spin with the fates, she'll lose the bread, in which case she won't be able to get past Cerberus, the dog with the three heads guarding the underworld. And if she can't get past the dog, she can't complete her mission and she'll be stuck in the underworld forever. So it's another very potent symbol. It's it's a time for her to accept her fate, not to go spinning her fate now, not in this time when you're in the underworld Maybe when you're in a more heroic part of your journey, that's fine um, to, you know, really make your own fate and all these kinds of things that we talk about in the modern day. But it's really important for the soul at this point not to get caught there, not to stop there. And then gives this bread, you know, this little bit of nourishment. And then, of course, we see this juxtaposition from when she was in her own palace and there was endless meats and and delicious wine and all these things and and she's she's now she has to be disciplined she can't accept any of those comforts now not now that she's in the underworld reminds me again of the taurus scorpio opposition we're now there that we're in the underworld we can't we can't be having that and of course uh, if you remember from the story of persephone it was important that she doesn't eat anything in the underworld because then she will have to stay there then she'll be a part of the underworld Although she does, Psyche has some brown bread, but I guess brown bread is uh, doesn't count for whatever reason. But yeah, it doesn't count. If she'd partaken in all of the fruits and all of the deliciousness, then she would be confused and she would have to stay there. Now Persephone has no qualms about giving her this, so that's interesting as well. She, she just gives it straight to her. Um, Persephone is barely, sort of barely a character in this, just something that we have to psyche has to go to and then come back from and then she makes her way all the way back up to the upper world and then in the upper world if you know greek mythology well enough or know themes of greek mythology if somebody's told not to do something 
it's likely they're going to be doing doing it. <laughs> it's the Chekhov's rifle or whatever it is. Um, it's this sense of like Orpheus was told, don't look back, and of course, eventually he's going to look back. And even closer to our story is Pandora. Pandora is told, don't look in the box or don't look in the vase. And of course, she looks right on in there. Um, but anybody that's told that, it's like, don't hit the big red button. And then eventually you're going to hit that button. So Psyche, she makes her way all through that whole trial and she's almost there. And then she thinks, you know, I bet I'm about to see Eros. This is surely my last trial given that I've just gone to the underworld and back and she's feeling you know buoyed by her journey and she thinks well it would be foolish not to take just a little bit of this beauty potion to prepare herself for meeting her beloved again of course uh, and then as soon as she opens the box she actually saw nothing at all there's nothing in there except that a deadly sleep invaded her senses so a deadly sleep came from the box and then attached to her face, and she passed out on the ground. I was talking with Brian Clark about this in preparing for this podcast, and um, I, I was a bit confused about this scene. But he put it so beautifully that that uh, sleep is the beauty potion. You know, when we are able to get to get good sleep, we are able to return uh, to that to that wellspring, and. I like that. In fact, what Venus was missing with her son so terribly and violently ill and dying from an oil burn um, was that she couldn't sleep and so she was losing part of her beauty. And isn't it just an interesting uh, or quite a beautiful symbol that Venus relies on Persephone's beauty treatments in order to keep herself youthful? So she relies on the underworld a potion of the underworld she relies on sleep she relies on returning down to that deep place in order to keep her beauty amazing symbols so what happens next i mean psyche she's she's failed hasn't she no she's not failed she's gotten that far and and there's a lot of understanding in the story so eros now healed of his wound thank god he didn't die was able to endure the absence of Psyche no longer, and so he escaped his mother's chamber through the window and flew out of there and uh, and went straight to Psyche and found her. And he wiped the sleep from her eyes uh, and put it back in the box and shut the lid and then awakened her with the tip of his arrows. And he was gently laughing at her incessant curiosity that got her into trouble once more. And we remember that it was her curiosity in the first place that really started off this entire journey. She was told not to look at Eros and she couldn't help herself and now she's told not to look in the box and she couldn't help herself. But it's that curiosity that is like, although it's although it's kind of like warned against, uh, it's clear that our protagonist needs to go with curiosity, gets her into trouble, but ultimately it it takes her where she needs to go. And if it weren't for her curiosity then she would still be in that unequal, uneven relationship where he can see her, she can't see him. So then Eros, fearing the displeasure of his mother Venus, shot up to heaven to speak with Zeus and pleaded his case to Zeus to absolve Psyche and himself of all wrong. 
And, you know, Zeus in this story, uh, Eros is the son of Zeus. So he, he was able to understand how much of a menace Eros is, but also how necessary he is in the world and heard the story and just could see uh, just how much everybody's been through here. And so in the end, he, he blessed the marriage, calling Hermes to bring all the gods together and gave Venus the news that the union is now blessed and sanctified. And and Venus could could get down with it, could understand it and could, could see um, just how how Psyche through her tasks and through her trials had actually risen herself to the state of divinity. And so at that point, Zeus took a pot of immortality, which Psyche drank a deep draft of and then became immortal. A big wedding feast was held. Ganymede poured the wine. Dionysus served up the rest. Hephaestus prepared the supper. The hours and the graces decked the halls with sweet-smelling flowers. The muses sang and Apollo played the harp while Pan and the satyrs played the pipes. And in time, a child was born, whom we call Voluptua, which translates into the modern day as pleasure. But I've got to say I prefer the word Voluptua. And that is our story. So there we go. With us, there's, As you can see, definitely needed two parts to get into all the symbols here. We dipped in and out of all of these symbols and all of the different things in there, but this is by no means, as I've said before, this is by no means an exhaustive list of of symbolism and what's in here. In fact, there's probably entire there's probably another hour long episode that I got, could go through, getting to the symbols even more fully and more completely. But that feels really good to me. I hope you've enjoyed and that it sparked some curiosity in yourself, and that there's elements of this story that that can help us all on our on on our psyches tasks these days i think that in in a sense you know especially reading marie-louise von france talk about this um the sense that this was a time in history where christ had just come down from heaven to be born and and this story happened around about the same time second century ad where psyche was born and then ascended so christ christ descends from the heavens and Psyche ascends from the earthly realm. And it really does feel like, it, even though, you know, it's not necessarily a scripture or anything like that, but it, but it feels like a dream, like a collective dream that has all these symbols and all this potency. And I really do feel like Psyche perhaps is the image of the age of Pisces that we all perhaps feel was missing. We got the masculine side of it with the, with the, the father and the son and, and then the Holy Ghost perhaps is uh, is Psyche herself, who's gone through this journey of starting off as a mortal, becoming a new goddess, a new Venus, as Keats celebrated this idea of, of her being the newest amongst the goddesses. You know, particularly if you listen back to my discussion with Tara Judell, we're talking about that of the age of Aquarius and, um, and being now in that transition from the age of Pisces and maybe Psyche or Soul is the one we need to look to Psyche's tasks as very clearly different to the hero's journey. You can hear that this is a journey of soul. This is a journey of feeling, of experiencing and connecting. It's a journey of moving with the pain and the trauma and the disappointment of life. It isn't getting the armor on, getting the weapons up and killing another bad guy, which will resolve everything. 
This is not that story. It's a much deeper story. There's a lot of magical helpers there. Nature assists, the spirits of nature assist, and the goddesses assist, and Psyche does find her way. As a final piece here, I'd love to end part two where I started part one, which is that poem that just keeps uh, reaching back out to me, the poem from John Keats, An Ode to Psyche. O goddess, hear these tuneless numbers rung by sweet enforcement and remembrance dear, and pardon that thy secrets should be sung even into thine own soft conched ear. Surely I dreamt today, or did I see, the winged psyche with awakened eyes. I wandered in a forest thoughtlessly, and on the sudden, fainting with surprise, saw two fair creatures couched side by side, in deepest grass, beneath the whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms, where there ran a brooklet scarce espied. Mid-hushed, cool-rooted flowers, fragrant-eyed, blue, silver-white, and budded Tyrian. They lay calm breathing on the bedded grass, their arms embraced and their pinions too. Their lips touched not, but had not bade adieu. As if disjoined by soft-handed slumber, and ready still past kisses to outnumber, and tender-eyed dawn of Aurorian love, the winged boy I knew. But who wast thou, O happy, happy dove, his psyche true? O latest born and loveliest vision far, of all Olympus's faded hierarchy, fairer than Phoebe's sapphire region star, or Vesper, amorous glow-worm of the sky, fairer than these, though temple thou hast none, nor altar heaped with flowers, nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours, no voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet, from chain-swung censer teeming, no shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat, of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. O brightest, though too late for antique vows, too too late for the fond-believing lyre, when holy were the haunted forest bows, holy the air, the water, and the fire, yet even in these days so far retired, from happy pieties, thy lucent fans, fluttering among the faint Olympians. I see and sing by my own eyes inspired, so let me be thy choir and make a moan upon of midnight hours. Thy voice, thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet, from swinged censer teeming, thy shrine, thy grove, thy oracle, thy heat, of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. Yes, I will be thy priest, and build a fane, in some untrodden region of my mind, where branched thoughts, new-grown with pleasant pain, instead of pines shall murmur in the wind. Far, far around shall those dark-clustered trees fledge the wild ridge mountains steep by steep, and there by zephyrs, streams, and birds and bees, the moss-lane dryads will be lulled to sleep. And in the midst of this wide quietness, a rosy sanctuary will I dress, with the wreathed trellis of a working brain, with buds and bells and stars without a name, with all the gardener fancy ever could feign, who breeding flowers will never be breathe the same, and there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadowy thought can win, a bright torch and a casement ope at night to let the warm love in.